the old pilots playing tales. God help all of us. Earlier this year, we heard the sad news that a great air race using electrically powered aircraft was cancelled. Although 30 teams had entered to compete, the organisers were unable to secure safe passage through the countries en route. A sad state of affairs when this second great air race was left with nowhere to go. The second, I hear you ask? I wonder, dear old pilot, what was the first? Well, sit back and I'll tell you. The year was 1919 and the world was just settling down following the armistice after the First World War. The Prime Minister of Australia, Billy Hughes, was attending the Paris Peace Conference and he had experienced flying for the first time. Much enamoured by the event, he imagined what benefits could be derived from regular flights from the mother country to Australia and back carrying passengers, goods, airmail and such. He cabled his government. Several Australian aviators are desiring of attempting flight London to Australia. They're all first-class men and very keen. Your thoughts? Only four weeks later, an official statement was released. With a view to stimulating aerial activity, the Commonwealth Government has decided to offer £10,000 for the first successful flight to Australia from Great Britain in a machine manned by Australians. The Great Air Race was on. The Australian press created an avalanche of negativity. A circus flight, they called it. Billy Hughes has another terrible idea. A complete waste of money and bad news for all were just a few that appeared on a regular basis. Overall, it was the opinion of most scribes that no aircraft was capable of a flight halfway across the globe in less than 30 days and over a distance of 11,000 miles, that's 18,000 kilometres, when the world record was less than a third of that. Impossible, impossible, impossible. However, within five months, six groups of Australian war veterans had paid their £100 entry fee and signed up to have a go. As for the route to be followed, the press described it thus. The Air Ministry route number one to India then onwards. The start will be made from Hounslow, and the machines will then fly across France down to Pisa, from then to Capua and Taranto, from which later place the machines will make for Valona in Albania and proceed down across Greece and hence to Cairo, then to Damascus and Baghdad, and onwards to Karachi, Delhi, Calcutta, Rangoon and Singapore, at which latter place there is a control from Singapore to Batavia and along the Dutch East Indian Islands to Timor, and then the last stage across to Port Darwin, Australia. The journey was considered one full of dangers, and the pilot who makes it may well, it was written, be proud of his achievement. It was at 11.44 on October the 21st that the first took off. Flying a Sopwith Wallaby, 
a large single-engine biplane designed specifically to compete in the race, was Captain George Matthews, with Sergeant Thomas Kay as his mechanic. The aircraft was powered by a Rolls-Royce Eagle 8 engine and closely resembled the earlier Sopwith Atlantic, but they had dispensed with the passenger accommodation and much of its emergency gear. They received a message from the Australian Prime Minister, who wanted to wish you and Sergeant Kay every success in your adventure. Plug on day to day, doing your best, but do nothing foolhardy. The Wallaby was well fitted out with instruments and described thus. Beside the usual engine one, the compasses and the airspeed meter, there is a turn meter, which, by recording the difference of air pressure on the two wingtips, tells the pilot if he's keeping on a straight course when he's in a mist. There is a flow meter, recording the rate of consumption of petrol, which works out at about 15 gallons an hour. A spirit level for sideways motion, and an inclinometer for measuring the angle fore and aft, as well as an azimuth mirror for checking the compass by readings from the heavenly bodies on a system patented by Captain Matthews himself. The window below the pilot, too, is marked in degrees so that he can observe the direction of drift. There is a wheel at the side for altering the angle of the empennage in flight. The modern pilot, especially if he is also the navigator, has plenty to attend to. After their departure from Hounslow, they were obliged to descend near Cologne. It was reported that some speculation as to the reasons for landing there has been occupying the minds of many interested in the flight. We are informed that the machine and engine are both quite all right, and that what caused the descent was exceptionally bad weather. Continuous bad weather kept the wallaby at Cologne until November the 2nd. They next arrived in Belgrade, Yugoslavia, which was in a state of turmoil due to post-war devastation. Local policemen thought Matthews and Kay were Bolsheviks and arrested them, confiscating their passports. The men were held in captivity for four days before being allowed to continue on to Constantinople, a journey delayed by a lack of petrol and then an oil shortage. On landing, they noticed a leak in the water jacket, which they ingeniously filled with Wrigley's chewing gum. Once moistened, the chewing gum became pliable, and when mixed with asbestos and secured by copper wire, it became the perfect filler. Despite harsh weather conditions and more technical malfunctions, their journey proceeded relatively smoothly until they arrived overhead Bali, only a thousand miles short of their prize. The delays had cost them dearly, but then, trying to land, they crashed into a banana plantation. Matthews came out of this accident unscathed, but Kay sustained a rib injury. As for the wallaby, well, that was completely destroyed. Back in England, at 11.33am on the 13th of November, Captain Roger Douglas as pilot and Lieutenant James Ross as navigator departed in an Alliance P-2 biplane. Only a few minutes into the flight, 
their plane, from an altitude of less than a thousand feet, went into a spin and crashed into an apple orchard, and both airmen died instantly. A week later, at 10.37am on November the 21st, with a crew of four, a Blackburn kangaroo left Hounslow. The occupants comprised Lieutenants Valdemar Rendell and David Williams as pilots, Captain Hubert Wilkins as navigator, and Lieutenant Gunsey Potts as mechanic. After 18 comparatively uneventful days of flying, on December the 8th, they crash-landed at Suda Bay in Crete, damaging their engine to such an extent that they were forced to withdraw from the race. A little late to the game, at 9.34am on December the 4th, a single-engined Martinside Type A, piloted by Captain Cedric Howell with Lieutenant George Fraser as navigator, lifted off from Hounslow. During his World War I service, Howell was credited with having destroyed 32 enemy aircraft and was considered an extremely gifted pilot. Approaching Corfu in Greece, due to heavy cloud and mist, he misjudged his bearings and the aircraft sadly crashed into the ocean just short of land. The wreckage and Howell's dead body were eventually recovered, but Fraser was never found. The fifth entrant, an Airco DH-9, piloted by Lieutenant Ray Parra and Lieutenant John McIntosh, didn't depart London until January the 20th, 1920, and so they were ineligible for the prize, but we'll hear more of them later. The final entrant was Captain Ross Smith and his brother, Lieutenant Keith Smith, with Sergeants Wally Shearers and James Bennett. Ross was the pilot and Keith was the navigator, whilst Wally and James their mechanics. Ross Smith had served with distinction during the war as part of No. 1 Squadron Australian Flying Corps. He had been twice decorated with the Military Cross and three times with the Distinguished Flying Cross. Their aircraft was the Vickers Vimy, a twin-engine biplane, designed as a heavy bomber at the end of the Great War, but too late to be used in action. It had leapt to fame earlier in the year when Alcock and Brown flew it across the Atlantic, becoming the first across this great ocean by air. Powered by Rolls-Royce Eagle 8 water-cooled V-12 engines, it was the most advanced aircraft of its type. However, it still had an open cockpit, so Ross was going to have to fly halfway around the world whilst exposed to the elements. Prior to takeoff, their World War I biplane had been painted on the wings and fuselage with the registered letterings Golf Echo Alpha Oscar Uniform, which was a recent requirement for all international aircraft. Ross Smith quipped that what this really stood for was Gold Help All of Us. When they finally departed on this epic adventure, Keith Smith wrote, Climbed over Hounslow for ten minutes, getting height, meanwhile realising weather conditions were not very nice. Ross picked up his course and we were really started. General conditions became worse, and for the first hour we saw no recognisable landmarks. The story his diary tells is incredible. 
Over Abbeville they found a line of dark heavy storms which they tried to fly beneath, but the snow was too thick and their pitot tube got choked. On the fifth attempt they managed to climb clear of the weather, but then had to navigate just by compass, and the temperature was freezing, their thermometer showing 25 degrees of frost. Heavy cloud, rain squalls, snowstorms, and blinding unbearable heat were to be their constant companions throughout the duration of their journey. Landing at various airfields, racecourses, and open fields along the route also presented problems, but taking off was often a bigger challenge. On several occasions, the ground was so heavy and the plane so saturated in mud and slush that they were lucky to get airborne at all. Together with his brother and their two mechanics, who were constantly patching up the aircraft, they remained on course throughout their journey despite nine additional unscheduled stops that they had to make. Their accommodation was often rudimentary, which made sleep difficult, and they had to refuel and maintain their machine themselves, often lugging big barrels of petrol up to the high fuel tanks. Flying the aircraft in the open, Ross Smith struggled with the constant changing weather. To reduce weight, they decided not to carry any radio equipment, and so they had no way of anticipating weather ahead, and using only a handheld compass to guide them, they were often flying blind. As detailed flight maps of the route were not available at the time, Ross and Keith Smith used whatever they could find, often basic hydrographical maps which were more suited to ocean navigation than flight. The crew were fully exposed to the weather, with the result that the maps suffered during the many storms encountered, particularly from Calcutta onwards. As they progressed, Keith kept track of the days. Bangalore, 20th day. Singapore, 22nd day. They had planned to arrive in Darwin on the 29th day, just one day in hand. But in Surabaya, they were bogged down in deep mud and were stuck. In desperation, they persuaded the locals to dismantle their homes and use the woven rattan walls to make a runway, and at last they were off again. On the final and most dangerous leg over the water, 180 miles off the coast of Port Darwin, they sighted HMAS Sydney, a tiny speck in the Timor Sea below them. The ship was positioned to guide them towards Port Darwin, but the men were perfectly on course. Proof of wonderfully accurate navigation on the part of the aviators, according to Captain H. Haley of HMAS Sydney. The brothers, who had no radio on board, decided to drop a message in a bottle to the captain below to let him know that all was going well. Using string and a hastily made parachute, they dropped the bottle, which landed in the sea near the ship. It read, The air, 10-12-19, Vickers Vimy, the commander, HMAS. Very glad to see you. Many thanks for looking after us. Going strong. Keith Smith, Ross Smith, Sergeant J. Bennett, Sergeant W. H. Shears. Their arrival in Darwin was reported in newspapers around the world. 
Flying High and Strong, the Vickers Bimmy, manned by Captain Ross Smith and his companions, crossed the coast of Australia at 3.20pm on Wednesday. Less than half an hour later, it had landed on Australian soil at the Fanny Bay Aerodrome. The weather was fine, and the scene presented as the gallant airman came safely to earth was very picturesque. Practically the whole of the population of Darwin and the surrounding districts were assembled to witness the great event. Captain Smith and his companions were cordially welcomed, but not before the crew had taken time to fill out the required quarantine and customs reports. Hundreds of cable, wireless and telegraphic messages of congratulations on the accomplishment of their great feat awaited them, including the one from the Prime Minister of Australia. We offer our heartiest congratulations to you and your companions on winning the greatest race in the history of the world and on the skill, gallantry and endurance you have all shown. We are particularly proud to feel that the first to fly from England to Australia is an Australian. On the 27th of February 1920, Ross Smith received the prize of £10,000 on behalf of himself and his crew. The Vickers Vimy was then flown to Adelaide and is now on display at Adelaide Airport. Ross and Keith Smith were awarded knighthoods by King George V. Mechanics Wally Shears and James Bennett received Air Force promotions. It was only two years later that tragedy struck. Sir Ross Smith and James Bennett died testing a Vickers Viking amphibian aircraft which crashed in Byfleet soon after taking off from Brooklands Aerodrome. By coincidence, the same aircraft type also killed John Alcock, who I mentioned earlier, the first pilot to fly across the Atlantic. Smith received a state funeral and is buried in Adelaide. But what of the DH-9 that left England too late to compete? Well, the aircraft finally completed the flight, the first by a single-engine machine in an epic 206 days, earning Lieutenant Ray Parra the sobriquet Battling Ray. Although late and well outside the time limit, the crew were awarded a consolation prize of £1,000. The DH-9 has been restored and can be seen on display at the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. If you enjoy this story, well, do me a favour, will you, and leave me a review, decent one, mind you, at any of your podcasting transmission stations. Now, Plane Tales is a feature segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. I think you know where to find that. AirlinePilotGuy.com.